0: You need to cultivate a posture of hope you need to cultivate a posture of generosity you know virtues of patience so so these but you don't just do it at the end of life you do this over the course of your life then you live a better life and you die a better death and of course undergirding all of this was that it was not to be done in isolation it was always the work uh, of a community people live and die well best in communities Can we reimagine care of the dying in all of its messiness as a gift, right? Can we come to see a, a different sort of beauty in that?
1: Hi, friends. I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of personal pain and social division. There are days when I can't really believe that I get to have these podcast conversations because I find them so interesting and so energizing and I can't believe I get to be the one asking the questions. So I'm always grateful for my guests, but I'm especially grateful for today's guest, Dr. Lydia Dugdale. She's really accomplished and has all the degrees. She's got an ethics degree from um, Yale Divinity School. She's a medical doctor. She works in clinical ethics, clinical medical ethics at um, Columbia Presbyterian in New York City, and you're going to hear all about that. Because Today, we're talking about um, her book, The Lost Art of Dying, and as a result, we're talking about disability and death and medical assistance in dying. But what I loved about this conversation is that I believe at its core, it is about honoring and valuing all human life as the gift that it is. So I hope you hear that and receive that out of this conversation. I'm really glad you're here and that you will be able to learn alongside me from Dr. Dugdale today. I'm sitting here with Dr. Lydia Dugdale, who is my guest, and we're here to talk about her book, The Lost Art of Dying, Reviving Forgotten Wisdom. Lydia, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I thought I might ask you to start with, before we dive into the themes and topics within your book itself, I would really love to hear about your day-to-day work. Because as far as I can understand it, you're both a practicing physician and an ethicist and you're like speaking in various places and you're writing books, you're doing all these things. So like what is a typical week of work in your life comprised of?
0: Well, (laughs) uh, I suppose it's variable. Uh, About half of my time, I'm a clinical ethics consultant, so uh, I'll be called into the hospital to assess whether we're doing right by a patient, uh, given all the different uh, variables involved there. Um, uh, 10% of, well, 10 to 20% of my time, I am either a primary care doctor or an internal medicine doctor on the inpatient medical wards here at Columbia Presbyterian. And then I do a lot of teaching both formally in the curriculum and outside of the curriculum. And uh, then, yeah, try to write and speak and, you know, run around and do those sort of academic things. So,
1: yeah. So what's an example of, if you're allowed to tell us this, like one of those questions that you'll be called in to consult about?
0: Uh, So, An example might be a patient is diagnosed with some sort of terrible cancer and isn't willing to accept any treatment because she's convinced that she doesn't really have the cancer. And then it might be, well, you know, what lies behind those beliefs? Is this a form of mental illness? Is this a method of coping? Uh, If Mm. there is some degree of mental illness, would we proceed with treating over her objection? Uh, If we're considering treating over objection, uh, what does treatment entail? Um, Certainly, we wouldn't you know t- treating a urinary tract infection over objection is very different than uh 6 weeks of chemotherapy or 6 months of chemotherapy or yeah. you know 30 treatments of radiation so those are the sorts of questions uh, there's all different kinds there's a lot of end of life questions um do we do we put a feeding tube into a patient with advanced dementia mm. uh do we remove life support if uh if everybody is very clear that the patient is actively dying and Life support is just going to uh, maintain sort of the vital functions while we wait for death. Uh, there's some, some of the answers to these questions are stipulated by, by legal considerations. So in New York State, for example, where I live and work, we are not allowed to unilaterally remove life support, no matter how poor the prognosis. But uh, so, so anyway, sometimes I just have to clarify legal questions for the medical teams. But that's, that's my role as a clinical ethicist
1: and your background i know you have like you are a medical doctor do you also have like official legal ethical training like where does that come from sure
0: so uh, you know the old school was that you got clinical ethics training in the hospital and there still is a version of that we do train our clinical ethics consultants here at New York Presbyterian Hospital. There's a sort of training program that they have to go to, go through, and then perform a certain number of clinical ethics consultations with oversight. They sort of present them to the senior ethicist. So that that is part of it. Uh, I've done that. Uh, I also have a master's degree from Yale Divinity School, actually in ethics. Oh, um, huh. So that gave me a lot of my sort of philosophical, somewhat uh, quasi theological. More philosophical, sort of underpinning to bioethics in particular. Um, Yeah, so I'd say that those are the kind of two big ways that I am trained.
1: Wow, that's quite a combination. And as I've now read your book, I've got a sense of some of those questions, especially as it pertains to end of life issues. Because you've written a book Uh, again. I'll say it again: the lost art of dying, reviving forgotten wisdom, and. I am curious, both from like a personal, you know, experiences from your own life and also social needs that you see in our culture, like what are, what compelled you to write this book in terms of both, I don't know, experiences you had as well as any um, needs in our culture that you're seeking to address?
0: Sure. So the book starts with a patient that I took care of and uh, he was a gentleman. I met him actually as a, a dead body before uh, I met him as a human um, life. Uh, he mm-hmm. was, his heart had stopped. He was on the cancer floor, very elderly, rather emaciated and wasted from his advanced disease. And his heart had stopped. And I was on the team at the time who was assigned to respond to the overhead code blue pages. And so we went and we resuscitated him successfully. Uh, however, given his very both advanced age and advanced cancer, we knew that it would only be a matter of uh, hours likely before he he would die again, before his heart would stop again. And in fact, that's what happened. And he died a second time. His family was very insistent that we attempt to resuscitate him a second time. And then Mm -hmm. we did that. And then the third time he died, we were not able to resuscitate him. But it was stories like this, as well as stories of Patients of mine who went through intensive care unit stays uh, either as family members or as patients themselves, people who've experienced uh, sort of the the prolonged struggle of the hospital, where uh, it got me thinking not so much that we shouldn't make use of this technology. Uh, I'm a physician and the technology is incredible. It's incredible what we are able to do. But what I sort of longed for was a more judicious understanding of the benefits of the technology and how the technology might help, uh, especially help lead to healing and a restoration of relationship and community, as Mm. opposed to merely delaying the dying process. And it's a very, very difficult line to draw. Uh, Doctors are poor prognosticators. Patients, we know from the studies, are apt to overestimate the benefit of of treatments and underestimate Mm. what what they, um, how how much they take out of you or take out of your family. Um, And patients also have, uh, many patients have sort of a deep belief in miracles and the possibility, and I do too, but uh, in the possibility that, you know, this will be a miracle for me and, you know, while miracles happen, it's not everybody every time. And so I think these things, it just makes it a very fuzzy picture. Then there's also mistrust of the medical system. A lot of uh, marginalized populations have really suffered at the hand of the medical system. There's a long right. history in medical ethics of experimentation, et cetera. So those, those kinds of uh, things combine; they coalesce to make this question of what is judicious uh, healthcare use, particularly at the end of life. Uh, it seems to me a more urgent question. And then this, I at the time I, I wrote the book, you know, Physician Assisted Suicide and Euthanasia were sort of on the margins. I mean, that's really becoming uh, more mainstream now with what's happening in Canada. So it seems to be that there is a, a, a graver importance. There's more urgency that we discuss these things now uh, because the alternative really is just to sort of euthanize people when they are um, towards the end. And, uh, and, and we see that happening in, in several parts of the world and it's concerning. So people need to be equipped to think through these things clearly.
1: Well, and one of the things I appreciated about your book and also some, um, podcasts I've heard you on and email exchange that we had is just that there's this, um, I, it's not a tension, but there are different ways to approach these questions about death because one is kind of. I don't know if unnecessarily is the right, right word, but painfully prolonging life, like your example of, I think, was it Mr. Turner, that his mm-hmm. name in the beginning of yes. your book, who was resuscitated these multiple times only to die again in this painful way. So there's a this like painful prolonging of life. But then there's also this kind of um, instinct to shorten life in terms of euthanasia both of which pose their own ethical problems when it comes to really valuing human life. And so on the one hand, we're making it longer. And on the other hand, we're making it shorter and both of them have problems. And I think it's really important to be addressing from both sides, the um, concerns, not only that have to do with those individual humans, which are very real and present, but also what does this um, actually, the decisions that we begin to make around individual human lives when it comes to death and dying uh, have an impact on our social fabric on our communities on the way we value one another um outside of these particular ethical decisions that have to be made one by one and i think that's where um certainly one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you was in thinking about the um, physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia conversation in Canada and the United States, and we'll get back to that. But part of what I think was important in your book was that you were writing a book about preparing to die and in calling it The Lost Art of Dying and the sense of there's actually a way to do this and we've lost it. And if we can regain that way of looking at not just looking at death, but preparing to die, we will actually be regaining something about living well. So I wanted to just start by framing this conversation with the what's the relationship between dying, preparing to die and living well? Yeah so uh
0: thank you for that. Um uh, so I was perplexed about these questions of my patients dying poorly or their family members dying poorly uh not not being wise with with what is possible and I was I was turning this question over and over and over in my mind thinking that there had to be a better model. And uh so I was reading all kinds of things about end of life care, end of life treatments, uh, what are the models out there? And there was a, a a mention in passing in one of these books about the Ars Moriendi, which is Latin for the art of dying, and it referred to it as handbooks on the preparation for death. And so that sort of steered me into a deep dive on the Ars Moriendi. And it turns out that uh, starting in the very early fourteen hundreds and lasting for more than five hundred years. There was a fashionable genre of literature called the Ars Moriendi that initially uh, was tied to the Western Church. This is kind of pre-Reformation, so the 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 Western Church, Uh, but eventually took on uh, after the Protestant Reformation took on Protestant iterations, and then Jewish versions, and then by the time, at any rate, of the U.S. Civil War, at least as documented by the historian Drew Faust, former president of Harvard. the Ars Moriendi was part of mainstream society. So whether you were from the North or the South, whether you're religious or not, uh, hmm. preparing to die was part of being brought up well. But as you indicated, it wasn't just about the end because the idea was very much throughout all of these uh, versions of Ars Moriendi literature, the idea was very much that if you want to die well, which everyone purportedly did, then you had to live well because living Uh, the the sort of habits that one takes on, the the character traits that one acquires, the practices that one adopts over the course of one's life lead to uh, sort of being a person of robust character, of virtue, of uh, having the relationships that one might aspire to. Those are all intact then at the end of life. But if you sort of live your life without any view to the end game, then you arrive at death unprepared. And so in the mm-hmm. earliest versions, they thought, um, and this was pretty common in the first couple hundred years of the Ars Moriandi, that there were sort of five main ways that people died poorly, uh, including impatience, doubt, despair, pride, and greed. Those were the, you know, the big five. Um And so earliest versions of the Ars Moriandi then said, you need to actually cultivate the opposite. Uh, You need to cultivate a posture of hope. You need to cultivate a posture Mm -hmm. of generosity, you know, virtues of patience. So, So these, but you don't just do it at the end of life. You do this over the course of your life. Then you live a better life and you die a better death. And of course, undergirding all of this was that it was not to be done in isolation. It was always the work uh, of a community. People live and die well best in communities. Um, We know that that is true. You know, there's sociological literature, certainly medical literature that shows that people in isolation have much poorer health outcomes, much more likely to die of heart attack and stroke if they're socially isolated it's just true, right? So we, we have this evidence right. to show that. And of course, for hundreds of years, this was the teaching in the West, at any rate, that um, living well is is intricately tied to dying well, and that's best done in the context of community.
1: Yeah. And so with that perspective of the Ars Moriandi, um, can you talk a little bit about the ways in which we have moved away from that and why that's happened. And I'm, I'm interested, especially in you speaking from this clinical setting, because certainly, I, I mean, it seems to me that some of these wonders of modern technology that we have are also part of why we are not uh, living and dying well in community and in the ways that you just described. Sure. So, uh, so before I, so, so let me
0: just say that the technology, the rise in the technology is actually tied to what Happened about a hundred years ago, and since we're just kind of coming out of the COVID pandemic in various ways, um, I'll say this: that the the big drop off in the Ars Moriendi as a genre of literature occurred in the nineteen twenties. Why the nineteen twenties? Hmm. Well, nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen, we have World War One, massive loss of life, not just not just soldiers but civilians women and children millions and millions of civilians died in world war 1 so there's a devastating loss of life and even before the war ended right we have the outbreak of the flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920 right. So what that means is that there, and I'll just say in contrast to COVID, right, the flu pandemic actually took many, many, many young people's lives. There, was, there wasn't the sort of preferential targeting of, of older folks or sicker folks. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there are autopsy reports of young soldiers who were fighting in World War I whose lungs were just like sponges because they were so full. Uh-huh. They, they were essentially drowning from the inflammation created by the flu pandemic, created by the flu in their lungs. So we have six years of sustained global death on a scale of millions of people. And coming out of that in the United States, at least, not necessarily true for Europe, but in the United States, at least... There was a immense economic boom, the so called Roaring Twenties, and so in the Roaring Twenties, it became about building, about new forms of music, new forms of dance. Women cut their hair, they shortened their skirts. They did not want to dress in mourning. They did not want to hang ribbons on the door of the house to signal that a child or an adult had died. Right? There was this, there was this push into just maximizing life, you know, sort mm-hmm. of you know, death and dying be damned. Right? It was just let's just <laughs> forget about this need to think about our mortality. Those are the old ways. We're moving on from the old ways. And even if you look at the text of homilies and sermons uh, that, that, uh, that were preached from, you know, the early 1900s through to the 1920s, you see a vast turn in the churches um, and in clerical settings away from talk of needing to prepare for death. Um, so in that context then... We also have a significant rise in the number of hospitals. In 1873, so just after the Civil War, there were about 200 hospitals in the U.S. And by the 19-teens, there were more than 6,000, which is slightly more than the number of hospitals we have today. So a huge number of hospitals. And then on top of that, in the 1920s, penicillin was discovered. And that meant that previously lethal infections now were easily treatable. And, and antibiotics were really in widespread circulation by the 40s, which is when we also see uh, the, the introduction of chemotherapy. By the 50s mm. and 60s, we are experimenting with early cardiopulmonary resuscitation, uh, mechanical ventilators, breathing machines, and organ transplantation. And then Mm by the 70s, there's combination chemotherapy. So, for anyone born, uh, you know, baby boomers and younger, the idea that death would get you as Mm -hmm. a younger person at any rate was just sort of out of the question. Um, Mm -hmm. Death was for old people. um, And, you know, and in 1965, when Medicare was passed, no longer was death really for old people because old people all had access to medical care uh, through Medicare, which was right introduced to care to, to prevent these sort of, you know, older folks dying in their homes because they didn't they couldn't afford to go to the hospital. So we we just we we moved away from it. And then you know with the rise of the hospital and the birth of antibiotics, it made it possible then to send a dying family member, dying loved one to the hospital rather than care for them at home? Because there are hospitals everywhere and who knows, maybe there would be a treatment available, right? So why would you let someone die at home when the hospital might have something on offer? And of course, that's, you know, sort of the
1: story. Most of us do not care for dying people in our homes. And though, in I, I, you have a statistic in your book, I'm not going to get it quite right, that's something like 80% of us want to die at home, but die in the hospital. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not quite right on that, but there's this yeah. disconnect between where we want to be and yet where we end up dying. And you do a wonderful job, I think, of demonstrating that it is not a bad thing to choose to be in the hospital to die. And yet most of us, when we do that, it's like we didn't really know what we were deciding either individually or in terms of families. Um, and, and so there's, again, just some measure of whether it's ignorance or denial that is keeping us from addressing and being well prepared for these moments and that are going to come to all of us and to the people we love, yeah, yep, that's right, yeah most yeah most people say
0: they want to die at home surrounded by loved ones, and the majority still, as of the most recent research uh, die in institutions now um not necessarily hospitals but also nursing homes or okay. hospice institutions yes. themselves yes. increasingly. But yeah, but most people don't, and you know, it's not wrong to die in the hospital. The, the one story I tell of a dear patient of mine, it, she had a, a terrible lung condition that, uh, you know, she gave her a very poor prognosis, which she outlived by miles. But ultimately, even though she had everything set up to just sort of flourish in her dying at home, ultimately she just felt the the sense of suffocation as this lung condition really just encroached on her she yeah. felt so much more peace being in the hospital and there are all different reasons why that may be true so this isn't to set you know set the hospital up as some sort of you know thing we need to attack and tear down not at all uh, it can have its place but people should sort of go in eyes wide open as they think through these questions
1: yeah, I want I do want to get to the euthanasia question in a minute, but I'm going to tell a little bit of a story on my side because I had this unusual experience as a I think I was I was 24 or 25 and my mother-in-law was diagnosed with primary liver cancer. She was mm. 54 55 years old at the time and was a single woman and so my husband and I just through a series of circumstances, became her primary caregivers, and she had worked um, running a hospice uh, program in New Orleans, which is where she lived. So she was, I think, more perhaps prepared to face what was pretty clearly a terminal illness than certainly than we were, um, and so she was more um, able to make decisions. She, you know, she decided to do surgery and then to do chemo, but at a certain point, she said, "Nope, I'm gonna get ready to die," and she. Uh, It was not a long, prolonged um, illness, but she took the time that she had to gather family and friends, to um, ask forgiveness, to forgive people very deliberately, to uh, talk with me uh, as her daughter-in-law. She said, look, you know more about... um, Uh, you know, I believe in heaven. I believe I'm going to actually be in a relationship with God outside of this life, but I don't know much about it. So can you tell me about that? Because I was in seminary at the time. And so we had these beautiful conversations and uh, there was really this sense of her, to your point, not only preparing well to die, but living so well into that death. And Uh, Then we did call in hospice. I mean, she told us about a month before she died, it's time to call hospice. And we did. And they were able to get us set up in her home um, for those final weeks of her life. Some of which were brutal um, moments and other moments within that were incredibly beautiful. And so reading your book just really brought me back to that time and to recognizing how unusual it was. On the one hand, it felt very almost old fashioned, right. To have this family that she never, she didn't go to a doctor's office after she stopped the chemo. Like it was, she knew I want to be done with um, that type of care. And yet she received a lot of care and it's not that there were no medical people involved in her life. um, And it did, I think, allow for a different way of dying for her and certainly a different way of saying goodbye and being present to her throughout those final um, weeks and months of her life. And then what was interesting, and this will perhaps get us into this next topic, the final day of her death, however, was really, really, really hard. She had been in a light coma for a couple of days, which was nothing like what I'd seen in movies. And you know, she seemed to be unresponsive, but was still moving and groaning. And there were fluids coming out of her body. And it was really, really hard. And at a certain point, um, her mother actually said, you know, if she were a dog, she would not be alive right now. Kind of like, yeah. why are we treating this human being yeah. as if she has to just keep suffering? And so Peter and I, my husband and I talked about this and he went for a walk with his brother because we all thought you know, should we call a doctor and ask if they can just do something to essentially put her out of her suffering? And his brother, for whatever reason, I wasn't a part of that conversation, said, no, um, we let this run its course. You know, mom chose hospice. This is what we have made the decision to be a part of. And at the end of that day, uh, a woman who had been helping doing light housework and light nursing care um, who was in the home went over and said to her, Miss Penny, it is time for you to go home now. Mm -hmm. And she opened her eyes and her sons came in. They had literally come back from this walk in which they had made this decision to just be with their mom until she went. And she couldn't speak, but she looked them in the eye and she blinked three times and she died. And so there was just this sense of this holy moment that I I mean, the way I interpreted it, I have no idea if this is what was actually happening, but was that she fought all day to be able to say goodbye to her sons. And they got that moment and we got that moment. And it was really beautiful. I know that's not how death always happens. It was also brutal and horrible. So it was all the things. And then after she died, um... The women who were there cared for her body, which, again, you bring up in your book, just this need for ritual. And we kind of just knew what to do. No one had done this before, but there was a sense of, OK, we're going to put her in a clean nightgown and we are going to clean her body and then we'll call the funeral home. And we, and we went from there. But that experience for me as a young 20-something you know, kid, essentially, really has shaped the way I think about life and death and, you know all of these different ethical questions and they were all brought up for me in reading your book. So I bring all of that up as a way into um, this conversation around medical assistance and dying, right. Around um, this legislation in Canada and again, in in various places in different forms within the United States. So I'm to get there. Could you start by giving us like a kind of 20,000 foot view? Because I'm sure there are listeners who don't know, Um, And I'm not sure I know. I mean, I certainly don't know all the details, but the difference between euthanasia and physician assisted suicide and, you know, how this is working out in Canada, why there are new um, ethical questions being raised in terms of the legislation there and who it pertains to. So could you just give us that kind of big picture and then we'll dive into it a little bit? Yeah.
0: Sure. So I'll give you the 20,000 foot view. But let me first say uh, on the question of giving people permission to die, it's actually really interesting. It's far more common than you would think. Um, Mm. And often families are reluctant to say it. And patients have never died before, right? So um, they <laughs> they don't uh, know that this is a thing, right? Because we don't see that much death. It's actually really common that, uh, and yeah. that's why it was the woman who was there attending, right? Who knew yep. to give, um, I guess, your mother in law permission to die. Uh, it, it, I think, as you said, that last day of fighting, there was it was a fighting. She just needed to know it was okay and. We yeah. see this all the time, actually. Uh, just just tell mom she can go now. Just tell her she can go. You tell mom she can go, and she goes. Um, yeah. So it's sort of, that's another kind of art and practice that we could bring back in. This is not wishing death. This is just saying the time has come. Uh, it's, yeah. it's okay. Um, so let's talk then, you know, you contrast that sort of beautiful imagery with this, well, why don't we just put her down like we put the dog down? And I hear this all the time when I speak on physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. And the truth of the matter is that if you ask a farmer who cares for animals, uh, why they don't sit vigil with the horse while it's dying, Mm -hmm. it's because nobody can. We can't possibly give that amount of energy to a farm animal, so we put the animal down. Mm -hmm. Human beings have a different kind of dignity, right? And there Mm -hmm. is something that is different about the human being that I would argue deserves that care all the way until the end um, and that that should not be hastened by inducing death. Now, so here's the distinction, okay? Um, Physician-assisted suicide is is the old language and that refers to a doctor giving a patient Lethal drugs that the patient has to self-ingest when he or she is ready. Now, typically, going back to when this was first uh, legalized, technically in 94, but really it started in Oregon in 1997. You had to have a prognosis of six months or less to live. You had to live in Oregon. There was a waiting period, a couple of witnesses. Two doctors had to sign off. And if they were worried about depression, they would screen you for depression, which almost never happens. And then you would get your bottle of pills, and you would have to sort of crush them and put them into an elixir and then take it. Um, now you have to be able to self ingest, right? You have to be able to crush them, turn it into an elixir. There's sort of all of these things, but they were all meant to be sort of safeguards so that you know no one is sort of you know going to hasten your own death. Um, we can talk about whether those those safeguards are really goalposts that are moving. Uh, that's sort of a separate question, but that's what's happened in the United States. So it's physician-assisted suicide. Those safeguards aren't, aren't necessarily all there anymore, but it's uh, legal or decriminalized in 10 states plus Washington, D.C., and that means that about 20% of the U.S. population has access to physician-assisted suicide. Uh, yeah. It is not... Um, legal in New York, where I am, or Connecticut, where you are. Uh, but uh, And I guess your, mother, your mother-in-law your mother was in Louisiana, so it would not have been legal no. there. Um, right. But Oregon and Vermont have very recently uh, dispensed with their residency requirements, which means right. that physician-assisted suicide tourism effectively is a thing. So you don't have to be a resident of the state of Vermont, but you could go there. Get a prescription from a doctor and uh, end your life that way. Now, I contrast that with the with what's called euthanasia, and euthanasia typically in the modern vernacular refers to direct lethal injection. Euthanasia is what we do to our dogs when they've reached the end of their lives. Um, euthanasia is what we do to prisoners on death row. Uh, euthanasia is, is giving someone a poison that that kills them pretty quickly. It's actually a cocktail Mm -hmm. of poisons. Uh, In jurisdictions where this is legal around the world, it's not legal anywhere in the United States, but in jurisdictions where it is legal, people on the whole, if they have the choice between assisted suicide and euthanasia, prefer the direct injection. Mm-hmm. Uh, they prefer to you know just just put it in my arm, put the I v in I'm gonna lie down and we're just it's it's much tidier it's quicker it's not up to user error um and so it is currently legal uh, well increasingly in many places sort of until the last couple of years it was primarily legal in the Benelux countries Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, legal in Colombia uh, in South America and legalized in Canada in 2015, and they started performing it in 2016. Uh, since in the last few years, that many more jurisdictions have legalized it, though we don't have quite the same data that we have, for example, from Belgium, the Netherlands, and Canada. So that's sort of the overview. And then, yeah, Amy, Julia, I don't know if you want to um, ask specific questions from there.
1: Well, could you talk about what's happened in Canada? Because there was a change, if I understand it correctly, in the legislation in the past couple of years that has prompted a lot of concern. At least that's what I've been reading. And this is particularly true in disability circles. So um, I, would, can you speak to that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, so Canada started performing euthanasia and assisted suicide in 2016. At the time that it was passed in 2015, death had to be reasonably foreseeable. Within a year of passing that, Canadian provinces started overturning that piece of the legislation, meaning that as long as someone had irremediable suffering, Hmm. even if they weren't dying, even if death wasn't on the horizon at all, they could be euthanized or they could end their lives by assisted suicide um, without having to have a terminal diagnosis. So by 2021, that was true for all of Canada. And then Canada legalized um, what Canada calls this combination of euthanasia and assisted suicide. It calls it MADE, which stands for medical assistance in dying. So in Canada, Mm -hmm. both are options. The vast majority elect euthanasia. They elect direct injection. So then Canada legalized uh, MAID for those suffering from mental illness. Now, Mm. psychiatrists have long taken a stand as a profession. Psychiatric societies, psychiatric associations have long taken a stand against euthanasia for mental illness, in part because of the question of where that line is, between yeah. um, between conventional suicide and assisted suicide or, you know, euthanasia hastening death, is a patient truly of sound mind? Is a patient not of sound mind? Is this an autonomous decision? Um, does yeah. the patient know what he or she is getting into? So for all of those sorts of reasons, psychiatrists have taken a strong stand against. Plus, Most mental illness um, can be mitigated in some fashion now. We have incredible, uh, incredible medications. And uh, so it was so Canada was supposed to roll out made for those suffering from mental illness and psychiatric diagnoses effective in March of this year, 2023. But they've actually because of public outcry and concerns about adjudicating this, they've put it off until March of 2024. But what we've seen since 2016 through to 2021 in Canada, the year for which we have the most recent data, comprehensive data, is that it went from essentially zero to more than 10,000 deaths a year. Um, The majority by euthanasia, fewer than seven people a year actually will crush their own pills and make the elixir. Mm -hmm. Um, And people are being euthanized for all kinds of reasons. They can't afford to pay their rent they can't get access to disability services they um can't afford their medical treatments or the treatments for their chronic illness um uh, there is a para olympian wheelchair bound who called the veterans affairs bureau and requested a le- wheelchair lift uh for her apartment and she was told that they couldn't give her that but instead they could give her maid and then <sighs> This prompted such an outcry, right? She is, I mean, she's an incredible athlete. Um, This prompted such an outcry. uh, The Veterans Affairs Bureau did its own internal review, and they found that there were four cases uh, of veterans being offered MAID instead of, you know, uh, the treatments that they needed or the interventions that they needed for their uh, service-related disabilities. So it's concerning that, you know, it's kind of brave new world-ish, you know, yeah. is this the way we want to take care of people? Because as a society, we don't have a great healthcare system. We don't have great social services, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have great community. We don't have great social cohesion, all of these things that help, you know, prevent folks who, um, who are dependent, right? From from spiraling into dis- in despair, we don't have those things a- a- in Canada. Suffering from a lack, the U.S. is suffering from a lack, and so I think, were euthanasia to be legalized in the United States, uh, we would probably see numbers fairly quickly um, that look like Canada's numbers, especially in you know in states where uh, people are really. Uh, in favor of of autonomy and of you know my my sort of um, living my life I'm mean, what is that state is it live free or die New Hampshire is that New Hampshire yeah. live free or <laughs> yeah, die yeah, like, that sort of live definitely. free libertarian kind of um mindset people in areas where that is very much the ethos we'll see large numbers of euthanasia I'm sure um were it to be legalized in the United States. So yeah Canada's uh Canada's definitely a country to watch right now for sure.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for just giving us not only that big picture, but also some of those really personal examples, because I do think it um, puts flesh on the problem in the sense of, wait a second, that woman was not in any way asking for MAID. And to be offered it without asking um, does bring up for me a lot of the questions I often get asked when it comes to disability matters, whether that is someone who has a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome and is not considering abortion and is pressured in that direction from a physician where it's like, that's, I'm not, I'm not interested. This is not what I want. And yet I've got an authority figure who is telling me that maybe this is what I ought to be doing. Um, And in other situations, when I hear about just um, even, it's interesting because I agree with you that the libertarian response to euthanasia could very well be like, I get to take control over this for myself, I also, however, I get so many questions um, when I I meet with a bioethics class of high school students um, once a semester to talk about when they're doing their abortion unit, but they're really asking me about disability. And I get a lot of questions about the economics, which is to say, um, in my case, like, does your child cost us all more than a typical kid? And how should that be factored into the value of their lives? And so I do think that especially in states where there's actually more social services and more provision of care, there's also an awareness that that's costing taxpayers dollars. And we've seen, I remember a situation, I think it was a physician in Australia um, who was not a citizen, who was applying for citizenship and had a child with Down syndrome, and they were... um, in Australia in order to care for people who are in impoverished situations, doing a lot of good within the society. And it may or may not have been Australia. I don't know. But regardless, they had a healthcare system where they said, no, we're not taking you because we'd have to um, yeah. pay for your child and their care. So I wonder um, what do you, how do you see the valuing of human life coming into this conversation? Like how does the way we Put even like some measure of like economic price tag on human life. How does that affect this conversation? How does it affect the way we think about living and dying? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, no, that's such a good question. Um, Canada is publishing a report projecting how much money it is saving from rolling out me. Yeah. So – and they, there was a report, there was a paper actually in the medical literature published right after it was legalized with a projection of how much they would save. And now they're sort of updating internally. So not in the medical ethics literature, but just the Canadian government is publishing these numbers. You know, when you are saving hundreds of millions of dollars a year by essentially hastening death and people can forego... Medical treatments that they otherwise would have, and you're in a closed system with a fixed pot of cash, that's very dangerous, right? Yeah, that's very dangerous. I mean, for the examples you just gave, and uh, I oh, goodness, I have had patients who have wanted to stop their treatments because they knew, for example, that their life insurance policies would lapse if they weren't dead. And that the only thing they had to leave their kids was their life insurance. Mm -hmm. And I like pleading with my patients to continue their treatment, or I'm watching adult children know that they have um, a stake in inheritance once mom goes pleading with me to stop mom's treatment so that they can basically let mom die and cash in on their inheritance. I mean, as a primary care doctor, I've gotten stuck in these things. People mm. are driven by all kinds of things. And once we make it legal and easily acceptable for people to be dead, we're just going to see it climb out of control. And I actually just uh, just found a study from the Netherlands where they compare different regions of the Netherlands and their euthanasia rates. And there are three provinces, I don't know if that's the right word, three jurisdictions around Amsterdam where the euthanasia rate is as high as one in seven. I mean, one in seven people just being put down is incredible. Mm right? And at what point do we say, this is just too much? Is it when we're euthanizing everybody? Is it when we're euthanizing half of the people? Uh, There were data coming out of Belgium that was published in 2015. So it's old data now, but it was really interesting to me because it compared uh, euthanasia requests granted in Belgium, comparing 2007 with 2013. And the number of euthanasias For women who were over the age of 80 living in nursing homes with primary school or less education, those were all stratified separately. But those four classifications, they all either doubled or tripled in six years. And then you have to think, well, right, if it's just easy to put someone down, Uh, why wouldn't you get rid of the little old ladies who are uneducated living in nursing homes? And like, look, I'm being a little bit, you know, kind of um, sensational right now with my choice of language. But I think that we have to sort of name the spirit that can lie behind this. I recognize people don't want to Die. Your story of your mother in law was 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 beautiful to that point, right? We people don't want to have to face these t- sort of terrible dying processes. At the same time, can we reimagine care of the dying in all of its messiness as a gift, right? Can we come to see a, a different sort of beauty in that? I I have another friend who read my book as his father was dying, or before or after, and he said the same thing. It was terrible. It was terrible, and I. But we need to, we need to change the conversation on that because yes, it's hard. It may be the hardest thing you ever do. Um, it may look ugly, but there's something so human and good for community and good for relationship that comes out of it. And I think that that's where the gift yeah. is, right?
1: Well, and I'm thinking back to, um, you have some pictures in your book from those Ars Moriendi, um, like there's a picture of a bedside, it's it's talking about the virtue of patience, and there's like a dying person in a bed, and there's this sense of it's going to take a long time to die, and patience is one of the things that is coming out of that. Like a sense of what it means to be faithful in love to each other over time is embodied I think in that picture and it's not embodied in our lives together. And yet that was one of the things, I mean, we came away from that day with my mother-in-law saying we were wrong to talk about ending her life prematurely. We were wrong. And it really actually, that was one of the things that set us up in receiving our daughter who has down syndrome to understand life as a gift in a different way and to stop seeing it in these kind of utilitarian economic terms But I do remember and this has happened a couple of times writing about uh, the decision to go on and have more children and do actually less prenatal testing with each child, even though I had a higher uh, chance of having another child with Down syndrome because I had started to understand the gift of life in a different way. But some of the readers who read that saw that as highly irresponsible because of the economic um, implications of bringing more people with disabilities into our society rather than seeing the gift that each human can be. Uh, And certainly we could have another conversation um, at another time about healthcare costs, right? And it's not as though they're irrelevant to this conversation. And yet one of the things I found so fascinating, I've read this before, but you reminded me of it in your book, that patients who decided to stop um, kind of, uh, I don't know, over the top, I'm, I'm not using the right word, interventions and get hospice care earlier lived longer um, because there's so much more to living than the medicines that we put into our body. And so much of it has to do with deciding to live well until the end within community and getting the types of care and support that we need. So there's just a different kind of, um, I think Charles Taylor calls it a social imaginary, right? Like there's a different way of imagining how we are and ought to be as a society if we are to approach and perhaps undo some of um, where we are headed right now when it comes to seeing human lives in terms of economic value, economic potential, um, the efficient ways to die, all of these things we've been talking about. And maybe that's where I'd love to kind of land this conversation, even though I could talk to you for hours. I um, want to honor your time and... uh, End with, okay, so what do we do? I mean, in the face of all the things we've just kind of spewed out that are problematic and continuing to head in that direction, how do we respond in a way that might actually be on the side of hope and healing without being Pollyanna, you know, about it all Yeah, no that's a that's a great question. I I think that's
0: sort of what I was trying to do with the book, which is to say look, there are lots of ways that we can die poorly, but with a little bit of imagination and conversation with those we love, we can think about doing this better. And mm-hmm. um, and that does include nurturing relationships. That does include seeking reconciliation. That does include hard conversations with the doctor and the medical team and family about what is prudent, what is not prudent. That does include examining one's, you know, metaphysical commitments, one's existential questions, right? What, What is life for? What happens when I die? Um, I, I, you know, as a doc, I have been asked these questions as patients are dying and they're suddenly realizing that they have never really solved the God question for themselves. Let me tell you, that's something yeah. that's really too late to do when someone is actively dying. Uh, but these are yeah. questions of living well and dying well, right? And so to work through those now, uh, while anyone listening can, uh, I think is part of enriching our lives and our communities,
1: as well as uh, working toward uh, a better death. Thank you for that. Um, I know we, again, haven't talked about this, but we emailed about it a little bit. One of the things I've been really struck by over these past really 25 years of thinking about these things between my mother-in-law's death, and then our daughter Penny's um, life has been the distinction between idolizing life, that sense Mm -hmm. of we're going to keep you alive at all costs, and honoring life and saying your life is valuable and it's a gift. All life is valuable. All life is a gift. And how can we receive that well? And yet also, I guess, relinquish it well um, to kind of know those human limits that are very real and bodily and come to us all. And I'm just grateful for your work because I think it is helping us address some of the distinctions between turning life into something that we idolize and say, kind of, no matter the cost, we have to keep this going. Or as soon as it seems to involve suffering, we've got to be done with it. Um, But instead saying, how can we honor the lives we've been given, not only our own, but actually in one another as well? How can we honor that um, in a way that allows us to, yeah, receive and relinquish the gifts that we've been given? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. (laughs) Doctor, well. <laughs> thank, you. thank you very much. Thank you. No, thank you so much. Um, just for giving us your time today and your book again, I'm going to say the name of your book again, because I think it's something that like pretty much every American should just have to read, but also have as a, um, as a resource and a reference, because we all are going to be facing these questions, whether for ourselves or for people in our lives who we love. So the lost art of dying, reviving forgotten wisdom. Thank you for, um, bringing us your book and sharing us, sharing with us your time today. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks as always for listening to this episode of love is stronger than fear. I'll remind you that we rely on you to spread the word about this podcast. So you can do that by sharing it with a friend. You can do that by giving it a rating or a review. I would also love to hear from you in response to the podcast or with other um, possible guest suggestions. My email is amyjuliabeckerwriter at gmail.com. I always want to thank Jake Hansen for editing the podcast, Amber Beery, my social media coordinator for producing and doing everything else to make sure that the podcast and all of my social media happens. Thank you, Amber. Thank you, Jake. And finally, as you, our listeners, go into your day today, I hope you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.